Okay, this is Beginnings and Ends, uh, which in storytelling is uh, sort of like death and taxes. It's kind of unavoidable. There has to be a hello. There has to be a goodbye. Even if you don't say hello, you don't mean to say goodbye, you have to start somehow and you then go away at the end. So there's a hello-ness and goodbye-ness sort of implicit. You'd probably all get, I mean, if you're sensible and normal, you get a little scared as you approach the hello, and you get a little lost and sometimes completely desperate as you search for the goodbye. The question, therefore, for the panel is, how do you do this? Now, the people who are sitting to my left never thought of themselves as hello experts or goodbye experts, but because they're very, very good at what they do, they happen to be very, very good at that as well, as I think you'll discover. So I think I'll introduce them uh, in order, actually, maybe introduce themselves. So. The person named Joe, who's sitting directly to my left, who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, my last name is Richmond. Oh, good. Um, good. And I uh, run Radio Diaries, which is a uh, production company in New York, and we do documentaries for, for NPR, and most of what we do are Radio Diaries, where we give people tape recorders and work with them to do stories about their lives. And are you rich and successful and live in an office with a great view of the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> Uh, it's, our office is an old tenement that used to be my apartment and um, actually is currently a little bit roach infested. As and how many flights does one have to walk to get to your front door? <laughs> I really didn't prepare this. Um, four, four I'm sure that if you think a, very, very hard. No, it's, like, it's a fifth floor walk up. It's a fifth floor walk up. And how many times has the pigeon and or squirrel who has been resting outside tried to gain entry into your tenement apartment? Uh, only got in once successfully onto the radiator, and, and um, now we have screens. Uh, to your left is Alan Berliner. Um, now, this is different because, like, he's not a radio person, although he makes radio references, as you will find out. What are you? What am I? In the narrow sense of the word. Well, at the moment, in a panel on beginnings and endings, I'm in the middle. <laughs> No, you're not. This is the beginning table, and you're at the end table. I see. We don't, we're not doing middle. Middle is for later in the day, I'm assuming. Um, what am I? It's, it's hard to uh, describe what I am, because I'm a lot of different things. I, um, I make films, ah. uh, uh, make personal, experimental, documentary sorts of films that have lives on uh, PBS here in this country. But I also have another body of work uh, in which I make for lack of a better expression, audio sculptures, uh, interactive audio sculptures and video sculptures to some extent, um, using sound. Sound's very important to what I do. Um, just for a re the most recent installation, I had a one-person show just closed about two weeks ago at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis, um, part of which involved the use of sound as well, a lot of com interactive computer things as well. So true or false question, if I go into your living room and you're not with a view home in not a particularly fabo neighborhood in Manhattan. But no roaches. But no roaches. And there's a large, I don't know, piece of furniture in that room which has drawers. And the drawers are labeled things like um, night or crickets or something. You can stand in front of this piece of furniture and pull out drawers in any order in which you wish and sounds will emanate from the drawers as long as you keep the drawers open. When you shut the doors, the sound will go away. True. This is true. This is true. Do you do this often, <laughs> never, or quietly all night long? Um, or none of the above. Thank you. 
When friends come over. <laughs> you know, actually, if you were to have a party, this is just about the right room. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. It's know. the perfect audience for this. All right, to your left is somebody named Gwen. Who are you? My name is Gwen Maxi. I uh, started at WBEZ here in Chicago and um, moved on to NPR doing essays, personal essays, humorous personal essays. And um, then I uh, had a brief stint in television writing, which was quite the experience. And uh, now I'm back. This brief stint in television writing involved a murder series, sitcom, what? It was a sitcom ah. uh, filmed here in Chicago called What About Joan with Joan Cusack. And you got this job because of something you did on yes, yes. the radio. On the radio, yes. See, it doesn't pay, but a lot of people listen. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, Jim Brooks heard a piece I did on Morning Edition and called me, and uh, that's how this whole thing got started. Fellini, too, by the way. It was radio and then somebody <laughs> called. All right, so um, I'm going to begin this session with a, this is a, both a listening and talking session. This piece that we're going to start with is, I believe, extraordinarily radical. Now, I recognize, because a lot of you are from high school or, or just after and so forth, that this is like going to be like bizarrely out of reach, what you're about to hear. But I think this is a good time to stretch, particularly at the beginning. So what's going to happen, well, I'll tell you a little bit. It has a very weird open and a very radical end. It is made by someone named Sherry Delise, who might be in the room from Australia, with an engineer named John Jacobs and a cellist named Ian Pierce, and a person described in the summary as Little Hannah Peters, quote-unquote, but it features a young gentleman whose name is Andrew Slater. I'm going to tell you nothing about it except to say that it's like nothing I have ever heard. It's also a winner in this year's conference. Can we have the, one, the, the piece called If? About six minutes. If. 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 If I were a fish trying to help someone. If I were a fish. If I were a finch. If I were a flame with the friend of a fish. If. If I was a, a bird. Looking at the children that were really sick. If. If. If I were a crocodile, a crocodile. If, if I were a plant, sorry. If I were a kid, kid, kitty. If, 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 if. if. If 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 I was a a bird and I saw a bandage around someone's head, I'd pretend it was my nest and start laying eggs there. If Hangs on a tree well hidden. 
If I were a finch, nesting, and in the children's hospital, and I saw a cast around someone's leg, I think is that a big um, what they call it, thing you find around in the beach? Scuttlefish, is it? Yeah, I think it was a, scutt- a scuttlefish, and I'd start sharpening my beak on it. Fish inside a fishbowl. Yeah. In the children's hospital, I'd be thinking, thinking, who's in the cage? Is it me or is it you? Well, it's me, you fish. <laughs> when I first get there, they weigh me, you know, take a blood test, see how high I am, put it, write it all down. And about an hour later, someone comes in and says, Well, this is what's up with you. This, 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 this and this. And in my case, it was low calcium. And this, 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 this and this. A kid, oh wait, if I were a plant at the children's hospital and I saw the kids go past, I'd think to myself, I'm lucky to be a plant seeing all these sick kids go by and I'm as fit as a fiddle. Or I might be turned into a fiddle, but I'll be fit as a fiddle. Oh, and just the other week I had a biopsy. They, they, they put me to sleep. And then everything goes all funny when you're going to sleep. Like, it just goes as if it's a, um, a lollipop, you know, those big ones, how they're all... No, it's like when you get a pencil and you paint it red in certain places, so it goes in a spiral kind of way, and when you roll it, it goes all funny. Yeah, that, that's what it felt like. Everything was going round and round and round and round and round. I wake up and then I got this, this bad feeling in my throat. It was all funny. If? If I were a frog in the children's hospital, I'd be stuck in someone's throat because they swallowed me. Now they've got a frog in their throat. <laughs> If I was a, a bird, yes. If I were a bird in the children's hospital, drawing a picture, I'd draw a cat and say, "Ooh, I draw, I draw a footy cat." <laughs> I always ruin a good picture. I add things on, think, "Oh, this is nice," and I keep adding and adding and adding and adding. <laughs> And when I finish, I think, I've got too many things. See, like in this, I drew a dog here, and then I decided to do a bed, and then I decided to do the pillow, then I decided to do the nurse, then I decided to do his hands, then I decided to do little, like, little shadow of him in bed, no under the sheets, the dog here, spewing up. <laughs>
like the drawings and the art, they made me get better because once I did them I thought, oh, this is a nice picture. Mm. And then inside it made me feel all, you know, that fuzzy feeling you get. If, if, if. If I were a kitty, sorry, if I were a kid sleeping on a bed, that's what I call endus interruptus, just nothing. Now, that might have gone on a little long in this setting for some of you, for some of you not, but there's a, this is a very, very high style, extremely weird thing to do. It's almost a musical, really. It seems to happen in fives. The if, 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 if is always in fives. The cello supports. And uh, it's so weird <laughs> and so extremely ambitious. Of course, Andrew Slater, the little boy, is a cancer patient. Uh, he's at the New Children's Hospital in Westmead, which is a poor neighborhood in Sydney. Apparently, Andrew's fine and... and but I want to sort of draw some lessons out of that, and then we'll begin the, the conversation. Um, if you think about what you just heard, several things are going on. When it starts, and you hear, if, you think, what? And they go, if, and you go, what, 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 what? And like, you've not heard this meter before. This is one of the classic objects of a good open. It's the hook. Like, what, do, what am I listening to? You lean in. If I begin a piece and say, um, in Washington today, the non-positive, you kind of know that it's, it's um, you, you know, the arc of it, that kind of sound. But something that begins, if, is just nothing you've heard before. One very important object of beginning is begin, if you can, in a way that makes people think, hmm? Not make people think, oh. I, I, <laughs> second thing. Um, the fivesome, the meter, this is a musical, but as we begin the conversation, you'll see that there is music deeply, deeply inherent in radio writing, and in television writing, and in filmmaking. And what this thing, this sets up extremely well, and very radically in this case, is a beat. Five beats, and then conversation. Five beats, underscored literally in this case by an instrument. But there are many, many ways to think about music when you write. And thinking musically is the second part of this. It was today, Von Bolo David in order. It has a kind of music. That's which is that you can hear that sound. It's a real sound. But if, 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 is another kind of sound. And when you write, you should be listening for the music inherent in what you've recorded and what's in your head. And what you're doing when you're doing this for a living is you are making music with sounds. Not the way Beethoven does, but not quite so different from what Beethoven does really. So there's hook, there's meter, and then there's itinerary. Sometimes when you do this kind of thing in opening, you have to you want to tell the audience, maybe, where are we going? Now this one didn't have an itinerary. You had no idea what was going on. You didn't know where the person was at first. You didn't know what was going to happen. So the hook and the meter were working for you. But here, the itinerary was buried. 
Now, on the panel, we have Gwen, who is not in favor of burying itineraries necessarily. <laughs> um, Gwen, when you start, <clears throat> as between the hook, the meter, and the itinerary, which one sort of is the one you're trying to wrestle with? <laughs> the one that I pound into the audience's <laughs> brain over and over again. It's the hook. Um, because I, when I sit down to write a piece, I often have uh, a sentence in my head that the entire piece is about, and I always try and get it. If, if it's not the first sentence, I try and really build up to the sentence, and it's got to be within, like, the first paragraph. Um, so you, so you want to open with, a, with what, some sort of thought that people would think would lean into? Yeah, yeah. It absolutely is as pithy and as short a way as I can say, um, you know, I hate my husband or something like that. Um, or, uh, you know, um, something like that. Uh, wait, wait, where do you... Where? <laughs> That's a good one, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, mean, I want to get you in, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, where do you find these? Is they, uh, they just pop into your head on a bus or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, oftentimes it's things that I have conversations with, or I've had, mostly it's things I've had conversations with people about for years and years and years. And I've just kind of boiled it all down to one sentence like, I hate my husband. The things that you talk about. Wait, 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 you know. you, when you write, you, does it come out right away, I hate my husband? Or does it say, very often in times of stress, I hate my husband? Say, so, no, get rid of the very often. In times of stress, yeah. I hate my husband. No, get rid of the stress. And then you, do you like pair or does it come whole? It, I will either, usually it comes whole at the top. For me, I hate my husband. Or, or what I, the other thing I like to do to build up to it is something to the effect of it would be like, um, uh, you know how it is when your husband goes away and he comes home late and you're thinking to yourself, he's dead on the road. Oh, my God. And then you think to yourself, oh, he could be dead on the road. You know, so that there's, you know, so that you either, either start with a bang or you lead right up to that one pithy thing. The problem is oftentimes I have absolutely nothing after that. That's, that, oh, you know. so you're, you're good. You're strong on beginnings yes. and weak on middles. Exactly. Luckily, we're not doing middles. Today. No, very good. <laughs> can we? Can you? Can you play us uh, one or two of these uh, uh, pithy opens? Sure, sure. Uh, Tell him something. Tell. Him. Uh, I guess the f this number is Ernst one. Ernst in the corner. Number one. This is old, but. My stomach has always been a protruding one. You know, the kind that has to be set free after a big meal. Ah. I wouldn't say that I'm obsessed with the soft, brown, fleshy nature of my midsection, even though it is the first thing I take stock of in the morning and the last thing I size up at night. And I'm not proud that the actual quality of my day is often directly proportional to that very protrusion. Big gut, bad day. Little gut, good day. But after a lifetime of trying to hide my abdominal rotundity under elastic waistbands and vertical stripes, I have finally found the perfect solution. Pregnancy. And the single greatest thing about it? Never having to hold your stomach in.
It's amazing. A liberation like no other. It is the ultimate freedom, the very zenith of relaxation. Who cares about the nausea, insomnia, frequent urination, excessive salivation, indigestion, heartburn, flatulence, varicose veins, swollen ankles, and, God forbid, increased facial hair. Your stomach is free to roam at will, to protrude with pride, to roll and expand like ocean swells. No more snaps, buttons, buckles, belts, zippers, darts, or hooks. It's any girl's wildest fantasy come true. I just want to say that that last line was supposed to be, it's any girl's wet dream, but they wouldn't let me say it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I point out to the audience here that, it, it, again, there's, there's musicality in the phrasing, in the, in, the, in the quiet joy that she's decided to express, which is, by the way, I mean, calculated a little bit, right? I mean, you're, it's a performance and a... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and then you're actually shoving music in. Boom. Yeah, right. Um, now, this is not necessarily what you should do in your home or in your radio station. Just shove the music in. Depending if you're on a newscast, you can't do that. But either way, just be aware of, of, of rhythm. Now, let me try Joe. Um, Joe has a given meter. You do soliloquy, right? So meaning that your people on the radio diaries are going to be talking straight to the audience. Have you ever appeared... Has your voice ever appeared in your work on the air? Oh, sure. I mean, I was doing sort of more straight reporting for a while, and still now and again. But, but since 96, it's been mostly these me-less pieces. Me-less. So with me-less, you can't do like, she's all her. I mean, she's, that's an all me. You're a <laughs> me-less. So it's a different problem. Um, why don't we, why don't, why don't you introduce the, what I know you want to introduce. Yeah. Well, this is, um, Actually, well, let me say first, since we're all sort of independent producers here, I'm going to do a little bit of credits with this. I think we all understand the need for that. Um, this is from the series called New York Works, which was a co-production with Radio Diaries and uh, NYC's The Next Big Thing, produced with uh, Emily Botin and Ben Shapiro, who I think are both here. Um, and this is just the beginning of Walter the Seltzer Man, and I guess there are a couple reasons why, it, to me, it's sort of a classic beginning. So we're just going to hear the first minute of that. But so before we do, the, the thing here is, here is, is that you're not allowed to say, here's Walter. In, in this arrangement. Walter just has to say, here I am. So there's certain, you know, if you're talking about meter, there are certain things, certain kind of clues that are needed, just the frame. There's a certain frame that needs to be kind of set up just in, in a beginning like this. So let's hear Walter introduce himself. Let's hear Walter introduce himself. <laughs> Ernst is looking for Walter at this moment. You know, it's, it's the track one on that Radio Diary CD. Yeah, yeah he's nodding. Okay, here he is. Uh, the time now is uh, 6.30 in the morning. I'm at 111th Street, right off of Amsterdam Avenue, not far from Broadway. Now, let me start from scratch. And my name is Walter the Seltzer Man. This is my truck. It has uh, a little bit of everything. A bunch of old, old bowels. Office supplies. I got uh, aspirins in case anyone comes in the truck got a headache. I got flares, digital camera. I have guidebooks. I got tour books in case I, I'm curious when I'm driving by. I see an old building. I want to know a little bit about the history. Whereas I have a, a truck that's basically extremely chaotic. So anyone else would appear to be a shambles. But to me, it's uh, 
semi-organized. Shout out to me. Okay. Now that's a perfect scene. I have pleasure in it. I really, it's not just the money. I enjoy it. We're going to take Walker. We're going to get rid of Walker. Camaraderie. I enjoy the socialism. Okay. Ernst was looking for Walter so long he fell in love with him and wouldn't let him go. Uh, seems to come pretty easy. Well, I mean, you know, there are all the clues that are there. He says, it, you know, it's 6.30 in the morning. Okay, let's start the piece in the morning. There's, we're driving down this place. I, I, I am Walter the Seltzer Man. Those things are the easy part. You know, you're just kind of like fitting the, the frame in. Um, but this piece actually was, I think, hard. We struggled to find what was going to be the real tape to start with. I don't think we were totally satisfied with this kind of litany of what was in the truck. I think it actually works pretty well. But for a while, we weren't too happy with that. I, and I know that what I was struggling with when I was recording him, I was struggling to get him to just describe his truck, the back of his truck, for a long time. Because, you know, he's delivering these, you know, these beautiful old seltzer bottles, these green and blue you know, uh, bottles from the 50s from Czechoslovakia, these beautiful old seltzer bottles, and the sun's coming in, and it's this kind of amazing scene, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bottles lining the truck, and I was in the back of the truck for a long time trying to get him to describe the scene, which I thought would be the beginning, but... Um, now, this uh, is a very <laughs> classical problem. Deep in his head, rooted deep in his brain cells, he knows how it's supposed to open. Beautiful seltzer bottles from Czechoslovakia, sun cascading in the truck. He can see it, but his rules are he can't say it. Walter has to. So what a mess. We have the example of the, of the, <laughs> the dark secret. We are now what, what we're very, about to play. For the very second time in American broadcasting, the first time being to an obscure radio station on Cape Cod, we are going to play... The secret life of Joe Richmond trying to get Walter the Seltzer Man to say the things that Joe wants him to say. <laughs> I want you to listen to this with deep caution about the ethics and the responsibility of all of you <laughs> to deliver truth to your audiences. And now, the lie, please, on tape two, or whatever it is. Again, before we leave the back of the truck, just describe, you know, just to get a picture of it. Just quickly. Cut it, because we got to go there. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Oh, we, just quickly, just two seconds, just describe. Okay, here we are. How many seltzer bottles are here? Just, like, describe it quickly. No story, just, like, describe Well, I'll describe it. So, anyhow, when I, when I, uh. No, 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 not a story. Just say, here we are. <laughs> as you can see, you know, that kind of I got it. I can't do anything about the story, if you know that already. So, anyway. When uh, when my vehicle was stolen, fortunately I had this other one that I was able to use. And what I did... Walter, no, because we got to go. We don't need the story. Just to say, like, we're in the back of the truck. We do need the story. Like, there's... i got to tell a story. I can't talk. I know. I have to tell a story. I'm I waking up, so it's going to get worse. I know, but I just but I just got to get the picture of it. You know, for people on the radio who can't see it, they want to know, okay, we're in the back of the truck. We've got how many seltzer bottles here, the green, just like a, a visual picture. That's, that's what I want. Let me do the next two stops, and I'll describe. We'll go back in here. Because I really want to... Okay, but we're, but we're here, and, and it right. just take a second. All right. So, anyhow, when when uh, I, I I realized that I, I would never get my my uh, well, that's soda. Good. We don't need the story. Yeah, I need the story. All right, we'll do it later. This is our version of a Barbara Walters interview. You can yeah. cry now. You can cry now. <laughs> Please don't tell anybody about that. <laughs> Um, but you, you, you insist on the, you know, in, you could argue that the meter of that discussion is more fun than the reader of Walter just 
you know, doing what you wanted him to do. Have you ever wondered? Well, in this room, it's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not so sure. I mean, you, you, in other words, when you heard that, when you heard your struggle with Walter, you didn't, like, weren't tempted to change the meter and just do, instead of a soliloquy piece, which I know you're famous for and everything, but, like, you could chuck it and reinvent yourself with a tape like that. I mean, someone might suggest that. Am I supposed to have a complete paradigm shift <laughs> right here? I mean, I, I think that... Um, <laughs> this is a good place. <laughs> they like you. you know. um, I mean, you know, I, I, I like the idea of putting the listener there in the truck with Walter rather than myself. That's part of it. And part of it is I think there is a certain amount of fear of... Some people hide behind the words and the ideas, and some people hide behind the tape. And I'm, you know, one of those people who hides behind the tape. Okay. Standing on his own territory for another few beats. All right. Let's go to Alan. Uh, now, what you're about to see, I think we're going to have to lower the lights uh, in a minute. Not yet, but we'll, so we'll be looking over there. Uh, the, um, if we're going to talk about meter, hook, and itinerary, this may be the masterpiece of just for didactically, for just this contains everything. And while it's true that it's going to go into your eyes as opposed to into your ears, that's not true at all. Uh, I want you to watch what you're about to see, but I want you to, uh, to listen to it, too, because it is intensely... By the way, are you... Are you... Um, are you more interested in what you hear or more interested in what you see? I mean, when you do these things, they're, they're very sound-rich. How, and you have these boxes with only sounds as furniture, so I'm curious. Yeah, but I have things on my wall that have no sound. They're just pictures. Ah, okay. So we're kind of balances out. Okay. No, I've, um, for me, sound and picture have never, there's never been a predominance of one over the other. I've never made a film, for instance, in which I've had a soundtrack that I put picture to, and I've never even, I've never made a sort of a montage of pictures that I've put sound to. For me, sound and picture are equal have equal weight. Um, a sound can be a metaphor in my film as likely and as easily and as readily as, a, as an image. So um, there, something about the equality of sound and picture for me has helped me a lot to um, create musicality and to create rhythm and to uh, create a kind of an interde interdependence um, of the, and within the relationships of both of them to one another and to themselves. All right, I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what this is about because the itinerary of it should just kind of either make it into your heads or not. The meter, I want you to watch for it because it's sort of obvious. And the hook, the hook is interesting. So this is, what's the name of this movie? Nobody's Business. Nobody's Business. This is how it begins. Said, well, what's this cheap run? We have no picture. Now said, the landscape. We have, we have to back up a little bit and we have no picture. Yeah, you know, that would be, of course, a prejudice of a gathering like yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> I, for, I forgot where I was. <laughs> so we'll just check the uh, picture giver. Well, we don't really need picture, do we? <laughs> you need two minutes to repair it? We could just, we could, oh, you ready? I mean, Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Sanyo, a company we, I don't know, we have a relationship with Sanyo? Oh, 
Yes, we have 12 seconds of Sanyo. We'll charge them later, I guess. It's their version of underwriting credits. <laughs> We said, well, which is cheaper? Can you rewind, please, just to the beginning? Just rewind, rewind, rewind. Start We're dealing here with an obsessive, as you can already tell. Okay, that's great. Thanks. And a little louder, actually. <laughs> Sorry. You can you know that. You know what I mean by that. The story is told about a man who went to an artist and said, I want to have a picture made. The artist turned him and said, look, uh, there are two kinds of pictures. There's a portrait and a landscape. He said, well, which is cheaper? The artist said, the landscape. He said, well, can you make a landscape of me? Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. How long do you think this is going to take, Alan? About an hour. Tell me about this picture. It looks like you're about to sing. It looks like you're about to sing or give a speech somewhere. No, that's not so. I'm just posing. For whom? For I'm just posing for the picture to be taken. There's no story behind the image? Well, uh, you, uh, you want me to make up stories? Alan, before we go any further, let me tell you something. I'm just an ordinary guy who's led an ordinary life. I was in the army. I got married. I raised a family. Work hard. I had my own business. That's all. That, nothing to make a picture about. Someone in the audience is watching right now and saying, why am I here watching this film about this guy? I would ask too, because I don't know what they're doing there. I'm being honest with you. You should be honored. I'm not. Your life not only can be... My life is nothing. My life is no different from I don't know how many billions of people. Who the hell would care about Oscar Berlin? Who the hell am I? It's ridiculous. Everyone has a life that has something special about it. No. Your life has nothing special? No. Nothing? Look, how could you be so convinced about that? You're trying to make something of nothing. You're my father. I have to do it. I need to do it. You don't have to do it. I have to do it. And you're going to do what you want to do, whether I want you to do it or no want you to do it. Okay, you're wasting your time. Uh, What's the matter? Nothing. What happens then? I just want to be open and honest right up front that I want to know everything there is to know about you and our family. And it gives you satisfaction? Be my guest. Where are you from? I'm from America. I'm born and raised in America. What else do you want to know? No. You are the child of immigrants. You know how many children of immigrants there are? That's exactly right. And each, and each one has a story. And they want to know your story. Yeah. Okay. Are you convinced of that? I'm not. All I know is that my father came from Poland. My mother came from Russia. Period. That's it. Where in Poland? Who the hell knows? My father never told me. You never asked? Of course not. Who would know? Well, nobody left but me, and who the hell would know? Well, maybe I'll ask all the first cousins. Maybe they'll know. I know little, they know even less. Okay, you can cut it. Russia.
Now, at risk of embarrassing him, that's just brilliant, I think. <laughs> and what is it about it? it it's partly that it's... Um, the meter is clear. I mean, it's very musical. There's things ticking and ticking and ticking and binging and so on. The itinerary becomes obvious. This asshole of a son and the asshole of a father are going to lock horns and go all the way... What would you say about my father? <laughs> this is, these are two people who are... He wants to tell the story. The other one doesn't want to have it told. And this whole film will be called, Please, no, yes, no. And that's going to be... And he has a boxing match, even. But the thing that's really interesting to me is the hook, um, the the amount of style. Like like just trying to like you. Where did you find all those pictures of reporters looking at nobody in particular? It's hard finding images of uh, you know press conferences and because it's always the centered around the yeah. Uh, the sun, or the, you know, the right. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was hard. I just had to. I looked in. It was all the know. same period. It looks like 1958-ish or something. Well, 60s as well. 60s. It's White House and White House stuff, and it's all various um, shots of the um, people recording, you know, audio or you know, cameras, and so just had to find enough footage to fill that montage actually, uh, without it, you know, and creating this sort of sense of irony that my father is kind of an ordinary person who's being accorded this sort of ironic perspective. It's, a fl it's an inversion right. of what's taking place, which is another um, way that that functions as a beginning because it sets a tone. You know, I'm, I'm sending out signals to the audience that I'm doing something here in, in a playful way. Be, be ready for irony, but it's also you know, serious too. You know, it's another level of uh, creating a establish a kind of contract with the audience, a kind of what I refer to as a bond, a trust. You know, if you'll, if you'll let me work this way with sounds and images, if you let me play this way, then hopefully I'll reward you throughout the film and follow up on the various metaphors that are taking place. And um, How know. long does it take, for example, just to find an isolated little hillock with one tree in a flat field? Like, was that, a that was a tough one, actually. Yeah, that was a tough one. Um, I had two or three choices. Um, do you prowl shops, or I don't? How where do you find these things? Are there, are there stores that are called islands and tree stores? Come no. in and browse. No, I have I have my own sort of archive of images that I've been accumulating for the last thirty some odd years, twenty five thirty years, and uh, that image happened to be there. Oh, so you're just a maniac. You're just collecting. No, my father's the maniac. <laughs> All right, I'll just well, tell the story. <clears throat> um, let me ask a couple, just open questions here. First of all, um, in, in, when we're talking about beginnings, um, the dangers, do you, Joe, ever worry about, like, once you've succeeded at one open, aren't you slightly tempted to, or do you suddenly discover that the next time out you're doing it again? Or do you get yourself into a routine? Funny you should ask. <laughs> Because I brought evidence. Well, um, you know, sort of in preparation for this, I was sort of going through the Teenage Diaries series that started in 1996. I was going through all those beginnings and sort of individually, oh, yeah, this is great. I kind of like, and as once, you, once I started kind of looking at all of them together, it was, um, it sent me into a bit of a kind of existential crisis. So I kind of, <laughs> I, I actually put a bunch of them together and I, 
Well, before you play the mic, okay, I, yeah, I'm just wondering, did you, discover, did you know the third time, oh, man, I'm doing it again, or did you not, not realize it? Not, not to the extent with which I discovered it about a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> and Gwen, same question. Like, do you, did you, when you listen to stuff now that you did five, six, seven, eight years ago, do you think, hmm? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a definite uh, form that I, you know, gravitate toward because... Uh, both I like it and for some reason it's just the way my brain works, you know. Um, That's the question. Is it being lazy or is it being you? I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, it's a hard question because, I mean, if, if your strength or your style happens to be one way and, you know, you tend to gravitate toward it over and over again. I mean, it's up to you if you want to, I think, spend the rest of your life doing the same thing over and over again and maybe finding new ways to do it, maybe not, or pushing yourself to find new forms and new styles that you might do. And I, I personally think, even though the work I've brought today might not reflect it, um, that, you know, that if you do the same thing over and over again, you just get stale and dead and that the that a true, you know, artist or creative thinker will always be moving forward and coming up with new ways, even though they might remain in the same genre or whatever. But do you, do you think that typically this would be a discovery you make about yourself or a spouse would whisper and say, <clears throat> that again? <laughs> and you would say, I hate my husband. And then you would say, ooh, that again. That's a new form. <laughs> uh, no. Um, you know, I think it works both ways. I mean, I think sometimes it takes, like, looking through your entire, looking over your entire work and thinking, oh, my God, they all start the exact same way. Um, and then you have Crowlich to thank for your existential crisis. <laughs> Damn him. Um, or, you know, or someone could point it out to you, but, you know, it has to be really good friends just taking their life into their hands. <laughs> I, I've looked back at, at things, too, but not just, um, but also seen that there was a lack of fear at a certain point. You talked about laziness, and all of a sudden you sort of realize that I'm not questioning every decision, but I'm just falling into this thing that I know, and so there's like a, it's just a safety yeah, safety it's mechanism. Easy, right? yeah. Because for all three of you, this business of starting is scary, isn't it? Or and should be, shouldn't it? Well, you know, when we were talking about this panel, I just think it's interesting because uh, I, you know the first radio piece I ever wrote. Uh, I literally stared at the page for four hours, trying to think of an opening sentence. Four hours. Four hours, literally. I did not get up. In a panic, growing panic, or just in a kind of sedate sort of Buddhist sort of way? Uh, huge, huge panic. Uh, terrified. I mean, absolute sheer panic. Um, because, of course, I wanted it to be great. And it was, you know, I couldn't think of anything, and I was playing, blah, blah, blah. But now um, I tend not to start a piece unless I have an open, and I almost never know where it's going to finish because it's not a hard news piece and I'm not necessarily working around tape. So if I am working around tape, then I do know where it's going and where it's going to finish. But you were saying that you, if you don't know where it's going, you can't start it. And I'm saying yeah, I can't I, I have finish. to know the finish. I, I, I have to know how it's going to end before I can start. You have right. to know the beginning and then you don't care? Well, no, I care, but, but. I, I, uh, I'm willing to let it evolve. Uh-huh. 
And Alan, you, you, I, you, I mean, you, you, make, you make fewer outings than these more regular people, but do you get, um, do you get very conscious of things you've done the last time and do a never again? Well, I, um, I, I never like to repeat myself stylistically, that's for sure. But one of the things that I do in my work is that I recycle sounds and images and pieces. So my films like it's often sort of recombinant DNA. I take sections and oh, really? images, and but use them in different contexts and other works. It's not quite the same thing as your question. But each, the truth is, for me, that every story, every character, every situation, every film, for me, um, requires its own language. You know, requires that I um, invent a vocabulary for telling that story, a style for telling that story. And, and is your beginning the bigger hill to climb than the end, or vice versa? Um, no, for, well, for me, beginnings and endings, I, I think everyone in the room probably can understand this. For me, beginnings and endings are a lot closer together than it would appear. Um, I, I can't imagine any that at least every person in this room has not had an occasion whereby you took a beam, I'm speaking architecturally, you took a beam, a, a sentence, a paragraph, for me it might be a, an image, or even a concept, or some essence thereof, from uh, the beginning and found that it worked at the end, or something from the end that worked at the beginning. Uh, structural pieces um, tend to be able to transpose rather easily sometimes from beginning to end. They are related. Yeah. You know. Well, let's still around with that idea. First, let's uh, can we can you help us do a participatory experience? You discovered your repetitiveness in in building a montage recently for this panel. Uh, could you share your own tedium with us with us? <laughs> that would be track number 3. Good morning, Jeffrey. It's time to get up. Let's go. <coughs> yeah, I'm coming. What's going on? It's Jeff. 620. Got to get up and go to school. I'm getting ready for school right now. Just got out of the shower and got dressed. This is a different piece. Right? And now I'm getting ready to heat up <laughs> my usual up. TV dinner that I have for breakfast. <laughs> I think I'll have a spaghetti bolognese. Let's go. Six o'clock. Time to get up. Come on. <laughs> Six a.m. It is uh, 6.30. I'm tired. Better get me a shower. All right, fellas. It's 5.30. Get dressed. Make your beds up. Let's go. Time to get dressed. 5.30. I'm walking around now. Come on, let's go. Let's move. Move your body. What's up? What's up? Oh, it's time to get up. Hi, Mom. 7.40 in the morning. <laughs> and I'm walking to school. How many of these are there? Uh, th this is the last one that I put in the sample. The delight of barks. Freckles the dog. But, now, but it seems only fair to give you a hall pass. These are diaries, so people give up. That's how it. That's how the day begins. 
Well, you, yeah, right. It's a certain, and, and, and I like the idea of, I mean, there's something nice about kind of going to the bedroom. It's like this, this way of kind of this intimate beginning. Um, so, I, I mean, it, you know, this sort of, it, it makes sense. But um, <laughs> in, in, unless you line them all up. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so but, I, I'm just trying to, like, when you, when you line them all up and you go, oh, my God, there it is again. Um, what do you do about that? You can't like have every. You can't begin like good night, dear. And, no. do the other. and the first, you know, in the beginning of the Teenage Diaries series, I was doing. I, you know, my editor Deborah George would point out that there would be like three in a row that had, you know, testing one two in it or something, or too many of the click offs or things like that. These kind of little, you know, sound cliches. But this, the last one actually in that sample wasn't. It was going to be the beginning. This, that's Nick in Utah, and he's starting off his day. Um, that was going to be the beginning, pretty far along the process until. Um, we sort of had a lucky accident that actually that ended up being the second beginning, and we inserted something else as the beginning. Wait a second. So you had this routine called <sighs> "Good Morning" as you open, and then somewhere along the line, you just had a loose piece of tape that you just didn't know where to put. Right. Well, I like that. You know, I think of the the mockumentary kind of beginning where it's sort of like someone's doing their thing, and then all of a sudden the camera comes over, and it's like. Oh, hi, hi, hi there, hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. So they all kind of have that, that tone. But then um, with Nick's story, um, there was just this piece of tape that I had loved so much, and it kind of wasn't working anywhere. And I just couldn't face the idea of losing this piece of tape. And um, I don't remember who, it was either Deborah George, my editor, or uh, Ben Shapiro, who I also work with, who just suggested starting with it, which, you know, had never occurred to me, but, you know, it, it so I think it ended up being sort of the best beginning of the whole kind of teenage. So diary. someone said, "Put the orphan in the front of from the front seat." Put the orphan in the front, and then this what became the, what was a cliche beginning sort of became the where you went. After do, do you have any, this thing? Oh, I, you know that I do. It's a uh, track uh, four. And there's that's not fair. We're sorry. trying to create a certain naive quality here. <laughs> uh, I left in just a little bit of Linda Wertheimer's intro because I just think it's so hilarious the way. Oh, Ernst, do you happen to have this tape? <laughs> this is Nick's radio diary. Hi, um, this is Nick, and uh, I'm going to play this piece I wrote. Enjoy. How are you? I'm okay. It's Halloween. My friend's sick, it's raining, it's Halloween I can't play cello for money, I feel like a nobody If there, oh, oh shit If there was some beer, I'd drink it and get out of here Yeah That's my summer <laughs> and then he woke up. And then, he, and then he goes off to school. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, let me explore with Gwen what Alan just raised, this relationship between beginnings and ends. One way to find your end is to refer back to your beginning. Beethoven did this with the ABA form in symphonies. You know, you just, uh, you know, you go, do 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 um, And then you go, boom, 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 and then you go, do 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 done. So you just... You do. You discovered the, there's certain utility in this. Yeah. Well, it's very helpful when it works. If, if, unless, I, I mean, I think 
you know, pieces can do many things. They can start at the beginning and take you on a journey and end up in a completely different place. But for me and the work I've done, it's, it's a little bit more rare. Um, I tend to be kind of a one-note, <laughs> one-note pony, uh, one-trick pony. And anyway, so, um, I, you know, I just find that it's, it's a lot, um, I mean, it could be a little bit of a cop-out, I guess, but I like to think the way Alan, you know, explained it in that the beginning is like the ending, and if you start, you can, you can make a journey and start back to where you began, or you can go more in a linear way and go a completely different direction. <clears throat> but um, I always think about going back to the beginning, especially if I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one thing you could play us about the, the third date one. Could you sort of set that up? Or how, how? Um, yeah, this was a, a piece, uh, one of the very first uh, pieces that I did that was um, an overproduced, campy essay uh, and the end wraps directly back to the beginning. So I um, brought it. And it's number seven. You want to play both the beginning and the end? Yeah, the beginning and the end. Um, this will tax Ernst to the... To the uh, yeah, it's number seven and eight. Number seven and number eight. So the, we'll start with the beginning. Yes? Yes. Don't yes. go out with anyone once. <laughs> and believe me, I have. I'll admit that the first date can be really exciting until it starts. And second dates... Anyone deserves a second chance, Gwen. Anyone deserves a second chance, right? That, of course, is the line faithfully fed to me by my nervous mother and all married people. But we like them! That was the beginning. Here's the end. Despite the fact that until you get married, life is just a series of relationships that don't work out, you're on your third date. You're sweating, and that's a good sign. Because the nature of that third date is that before the night is over, you will know. You will know whether you find his machine gun laugh about as soothing as a jackhammer, or if you just go dewy-eyed over the way he orders Mugu Gai Pan. We'll have the Mugu Gai Pan, Sibu play. On the third date, you either fish or cut bait. Chances are you're having a real live good time. You may even be envisioning the day when you let him see you unabashedly bleaching your mustache. Enjoy, because this is the best part of any relationship, before you really know each other. And remember that after this, you either have to live through another first date with another Yahoo. Hi, is Gwen there? Or step boldly into the cavernous romantic black hole commonly referred to as the fourth date. Gwen <laughs> Maxi is a writer and radio producer. So there you have it. Yeah. I guess uh, I, I want to give some time for questions, so we, should, we, have to, we, we have sort of begun to move into ends territory. So let me just say a few things about ends. First of all, in broadcasting, in this particular medium, ends are a little bit easier just because of innate musicality. For example, you can create an end uh, in your voice. It, for, here's an example. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack came down, fell down, broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Now, you can take the exact same story and end it anywhere you like. I've seen Peter Jennings do this constantly. When the director's going three, two, one, he has to end. So he could do, 
Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. <laughs> or he could do... Jack and Jill went up the hill. Jack fell down. You could even do... Jack and Jill went up. Maybe not, maybe not. Jack and Jill went up the hill. It, it, all you have to do is just crest and fall. Crest and fall. So ends are available to you. And the audience, just hearing the rhythm, will go, Oh, I have to go, thanks. So you're tucked in. Uh, there, are other, uh, there are other kinds of ends. Um, one time, and this is where it's sort of based on what Gwen says, where you, you, you play an internal game. You set up something so you can, then, you can then end it by just goosing it or tucking it back in. I once, uh, for ABC, had to do a piece about the single television program that got the most political ads in America. And by a very, very large margin, it happened to be Pat Sajak's uh, show, um, which is Wheel of Fortune. And it, it just gets a very large adult audience, huge adult audience with a high propensity to vote. So people who are campaigning for anything want to make a buy on Wheels of Fortune. So I went to see Pat Sajak to talk to him about, you know, this peculiar sort of cultural cul-de-sac that his game show was like the, the most desired place on television for presidents, senators, and congressmen, and so forth. And uh, he's look, looking at me with the weird look of anybody who would be approached by such a, such a topic. And he says to me in the, in the interview, he says, you'll never make a story out of this. I say, why? He says, well, you can't. So I have that tape. So the piece ends, you'll never make a story out of this. Why? Well, you can't. Well, I just did. Robert Kovich, ABC News. <laughs> so you just, uh, what you're doing is you're just sort of taking the thing you've got and just tucking it in or, or, or hitting it in the face or something. But it has a over uh, finished. So um, let me just get, the, but I seem to think also that there are probably three categories of ends. There's the end ends, where you, you, you say, you know, we're at the end of our journey. There's the, so that's the reason why, that's the sort of the explanation end. What, and then there's the one that Alan does, I think, pretty well, which is just the, hmm, end. Which is, it's a sort of like the arranging flowers end. You, you, you don't know quite why it feels like an end. It's very personal to you, but it works for you. You, of course, have no idea whether it worked for anybody else, but it seems somehow pregnant with everything that went before, but size at the very same time. I, I'm, uh, let me see here. I'm inclined to just show you, um, Alan's end of the boxing picture, because sh shall we? Might as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and then maybe you could talk. So why don't we see this? You saw how it began—the thing with his dad. The dad is relentless, and Alan is relentless. Relentlessness turns out to be the subject of the end, just exactly where it began. So let's just see how he ended it. And when you think back and say, "Hey, my father was." Hey, it wasn't so bad after all. You know, I've always felt that you're never sharper, never more alert, in many ways never more alive than when we have these conversations. It's as if they're a kind of mental exercise for you. Bullshit. There's an old expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You don't think it's an expression of love for me to you that I'm doing no, this? No. You don't seek it at all like that? No. I think what you're doing is great because, you know, it, it keeps him going. I think your father is the type of person who can take it 
because to a certain extent that's his personality too. Sometimes I think when you and your father get together, it's a meeting of the irresistible force versus the immovable object. You are the irresistible force and he is the immovable object. He'll never be the person that you wanted him to be and he might have let you down in ways that he doesn't even begin to understand. But I suppose just final acceptance for the last years of his life will help you when he's not here. Wait, 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 no. Come on, Woody Allen, for Christ's sake, what now? I always felt, and I've said this to Lynn more than once, that with your intelligence, with your brains, you could have been an accountant, you could have been a lawyer, you could have been an engineer, and you could have been any one of the professions. You chose this? In my opinion, you are absolutely wasting your God-given talents. This is nothing. You make this picture, you make some other crummy picture next year. In two or three years, it'll run its course, and then where will you be? What have you built? What have you built? I am your father, and I am telling you what I honestly believe to be the truth, and for your own benefit, whether you want to hear it or not. But I show my films all over the world. That's nonsense. Let me tell you something. I've been a working stiff all my life, hard worker, and never ask anybody for anything. My son's a liberal. All he knows is to get something for nothing. How do I get something for nothing? He looks at the handouts. What are you talking about? You look at the handout. To me, uh, grant is a handout. I don't care how, care how, you, how, how you say it. You know how hard it is to get the grants and the fellowship? I don't, I don't give a hard. damn what they're hard to get. The fact of the matter is, you don't have a job, you don't have a business, you're working on handouts. I'm, I'm convinced that you're doing the wrong thing. You have anything else to say before we stop? I think I've said enough. Make a wish, Dad. You may be the bravest son on earth. Um, well, I don't even know what to ask you. No, you know, I'll just say, you know, a few things, the way that functions as an ending. I mean, again, we've missed sort of the middle, and um, although it's much like that. But at one point in the film, at one point, but just, as, I mean, just in terms of storytelling, at one point in the film, my father said, well, after he said that, he didn't know his parents' birthdays. He didn't even know how many years his parents had been married. He didn't know their anniversary day. And then he remarked that he had never in his entire life had a birthday party. So just before the film ends, and meanwhile, he's sort of like, when is it? You know, he's kind of been rather testy and resistant throughout. So this little sort of joke here at the end, the film goes to black. And then he's, and I said, wait, we're not done yet. You know, he says, oh, Jesus Christ, now what now? I give him a little birthday party. You know, in the film, it's sort of, it has a, there's a poignancy to that that's, that's a thread that had been woven and, and discussed earlier. But what's also going on here, back to this beginning and end, 
At the beginning of the film, my father is taking issue with the specific nature of the project. A film about him is not worthy. A film about his life would interest nobody. There's no significance. There's no meaning. There's, there's nothing. What, there's a kind of reiteration here at the end, not necessarily about the specificity of the project, but about the, if you will, the nature of such a career that would generate it. You know? So it's a reiteration that's, we're really talking about the same thing, but in a different way. And it connects to the beginning. It actually connects to, to the middle, too. But the point is that, that it is, it creates that arc. It buttons it, it buttons it down because it's no longer about him. It's about me. But it can't be about him or about me if I don't do what I'm doing. And so there's a circularity to that that reinforces and I think gives closure to the entire, um, Project of the did film. you um, did you create the birthday party in some because you just thought <clears throat> it would be the nice thing to do or a goof or or did you create the birthday party with the, perhaps the secret intention of having something to end with? Um, didn't know I was going to use. I shot it. The film took three years to make uh, from beginning to end. Probably shot it at the second in the middle of the project, process of making the film. It was. Um, an idea that occurred to me. It was not intentional for that purpose. Let me ask the, the two others on your left and right. Do you, um, do you hear ends when you bump into them? Do you look for them? Or do they just, do you find them in the edit room later? Sometimes, I mean, there's, there are the occasion when you hear an end and you just, and then you say, can you do that story again and again and again, just to make sure you have so many different versions that you'll, you know. But I think a lot of times, for me, I think maybe I like beginnings more than ends. I, I, I kind of manufacture ends, I think, later on. I may know where an end, structurally where the story is going to end, but I don't really know the tape and the tone and the, you know. So you, you, that's something you do after you come back indoors most of the time. And as even, maybe not even the beginning, you know, I think I really just start with the beginning and then hope I'm going to get to an end. Huh. I may know where. It's so different for me. I mean, I, if I don't know the end, I can't even go out the door. It's weird. I, I can't go out the door. I have to hear the end. I, otherwise, I don't know where I'm going. I, uh, it seems so brave to just go out and say, hello, world, and have no goodbye in your back pocket. You might be stuck out there forever. <laughs> that... Yeah, well, that's that's why some of these take a year. Or, <laughs> Gwen, do you do you hear them when you hear them? Well, if I'm working with tape, uh, I, I'm always listening. I mean, if something strikes me as an ending, I definitely you know flag it and try and write to it. Um, but if I'm doing an essay, um, then I feel like then I don't know where the ending's going. And then sometimes I, you know, have different forms. Sometimes I'll go back ABA and go back to the beginning. I prefer, if I can, to try and um, end it in a more ending kind of way, you know, where you actually come up with a, a good, solid something that sounds like... That's a writerly, a, a writerly end. Yeah, I think. Um, and then... Uh, as I was saying before, that, but I, I often get very stuck on endings, very, very stuck on endings. I think endings are the hardest thing to do, for me at least. And, um, you know, that's when sometimes I literally have to get up and talk to people and, uh, you know, talk to people and hopefully they're funnier than I am and they come up with an ending for me. 
Which has happened many times. <laughs> Do you ask? I don't ask. That's not a question you can really but, say. <laughs> but I have had people, you know, if you have a great editor or you have friends and you're like, oh, I'm stuck on this piece and blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes you get good material. And if you, you know, get their permission to steal it, that's a good thing. But um, I will say that in, when I was working in television, the last... Uh, the last sentence, the last joke in any scene in television and a sitcom is called The Blow. And The Blow kept people working until all hours. And they were so hard to come up with because everybody wants to land on a punch. You know, everybody wants to knock out the audience before you go to black or go to the next reporter or whatever. That they were so difficult that, I mean, it was just, I can't even tell you how late people were there trying to think of the blow. And then the writers would all divide into their own little caves to try and come up with the blow for this scene and the blow for that scene. And I, I mean, I just think that, you know, they're very difficult. And when you have to uh, see a lot of endings, come up with a lot of endings like Saturday Night Live or, you know, Second City or something, that... A lot of them fail. Yeah, that's actually you notice that in, in those comedic sketches, the endings can often be weak. The beginnings are pretty right. good. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to come up with a strong ending, but um, uh, but it's worth. I think it's worth spending the time on. And then you know, again. Something. Well, I'm going to ask the audience. I don't know what time is this session supposed to end. Do they tell us? Half when? hour ago. No. <laughs> in ten minutes. Oh, then some. Then, then it's question time. It's question time. Uh, so you go to the microphone left or right, and you ask whatever you want. I'm sorry. I overdid this slightly. Uh, you have to go ahead and just, just blow onto it for a second. Yeah. Uh, so what do you do if you have a great beginning or you have a great end, but the rest of the tape is horrible and you... <laughs> what do you do? Do you do? you Noah, you're, you're in the you wrong room. This is the beginning. You want to talk about middles? <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> next year. Next year. Uh, no, I guess we should take. <laughs> we don't know. We weren't prepared for that question. We're not up to that. Have you yet. ever found yourself in a situation where you have either a great beginning or a great end, and then you just have to come up with a completely different piece than you thought you were going to do because what you had just didn't fit. No. <laughs> uh, which is very interesting. No, I, I've never, I've, my beginnings and ends control. Have you ever changed everything from the middle to outward? Uh, well, once I started working on one piece and ended up doing a completely different piece with completely different tape on the suggestion of a friend and producer. I mean, because it just was, you know, something like that. I don't know if that qualifies. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll just say one thing. I think if you can, uh, I think if you have to do the piece and you have a strong beginning and a strong end, you have to write the hell out of the middle. I mean, you have to keep the attention from the beginning to the end. And if you have tape that sucks, then I think you just have to write the hell out of it. I mean, you have to really, that's where your writing, I think, really is going to yeah. keep the piece buoyant. I do have the piece I was talking about earlier. I do have a piece that it was a second piece, Josh Cutler's second diary, that um, though I don't remember anything about the piece except for the last minute. I mean, to me, that, that was just the importance of the whole piece. It, was, it ended up being not about what it was supposed to be about. It ended up being about his first kiss, and then he comes back and he reads the instructions that the girl he kissed wrote to him because he, she said she was doing it, he was doing it wrong. And it was like, step one, 
stick tongue in. Step two, open, you know, swish around, repeat steps one, two. And that was the whole piece was the last minute. And it was all for me. It was all just getting to that, this piece of paper. Okay. Yeah. Robert, is, is the uh, indifference in your approach, um, you really have to have that ending. Is it because, in contrast with the explorations that the others are doing, you're starting out, you're in news, and you're starting out with a concept that you're trying to get across, a difficult concept. So you know that that's where you have to get the people to. You're setting out to teach. Perhaps. Uh, to I, that, I, and then, so that then you design the maze out of that. Okay, how am I going to get people to that end point? So your ending is, for the audience, is your beginning, your marching orders as, as a writer. Well, I'm not sure that's the case, but it does, you make a good point, by the way. Most of you, when you get your jobs, are going to not be asked to do, you know, I'm pregnant and my, my belly is beautiful pieces. It's going to be going to the city hall and, or trying to explain what a default is, maybe, or something. Those are more likely assignments. And so what we're talking about here is, um, is the fun part of inventing stories. And these people are, pure, are as pure inventors as you can be in nonfiction. Uh, but most of you can take these very same techniques when you go to the mayor or you go to the police chief and you ask about a, you know, a, an event that just took place. And you can play with rhythms, and you can play with um, beginnings and ends, not quite as freely as these people are doing here, because they're pretty much on their own. I mean, they have nothing to offer the audience but their story. Most of you at least get the crutch of something just happened, let me tell you it, or let me explain it. So while I'm not sure that there's an architectural difference built in, it certainly makes a lot of difference. Beginnings, middles, and ends are already spoken for when it's a this-just-in story or something in the news, that's for sure. So we should thank you for, yeah. Oh, uh, are we going left and right? Yeah, go ahead. You go ahead, okay. Ms. Green, sweater person. Susan. Hi. Um, this is also based on Robert's uh, statement about needing an end, but any of you, you know, have some insight, it would be great to, to hear you talk about it. Um, I'm wondering whether having the structure of knowing the end uh, rather than giving you a limit, gives you more freedom to explore creatively within that framework. I would answer that absolutely for sure. I, I'm, I'm just more interested in these guys. I, 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 without my end, I, I have no. Um, I'm, I'm, fl I'm falling free fall. I have nothing. I'm just screaming. So, uh, how do you guys do it? <laughs> I think I think uh, I'm almost I'm just exactly the opposite. At least in the essay form, you know, I feel like uh, I mean I, I'd love to know where I, I'm going to end up, but I, since I don't, I feel like it offers you. It's just a, doors are blown open. You can end up a thousand different places, and every time you sit down to your computer or your tape deck. You're a different person, and on Wednesday it's going to end up here, and on Friday it's going to end up there, and you know you could have a thousand different pieces out of the same material. So um, I think it just kind of, you know, I, I don't mind not knowing where it's going to end because I think it offers you more creativity. So I guess you can sort yourselves into a Gwen's or Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, just as a follow-up, I, I think. <clears throat> I, I, actually used to be an accountant. <laughs> oh. And everything is very, you know, you know the ends that you're trying to reach generally. Um, <clears throat> but uh, 
wanting to get out of that when I started doing more creative work. I, I take th- drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yes, heavy drinking and um, you know wanting to say, okay, I don't want to know the end. I just want to see where it takes me. And taking a risk there is, I don't. I think, you know, it's good to kind of go back and forth. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know whether anyone has anything else to say about it. Okay. Um, Could you tilt the microphone a little closer to you now? There's often a debate between editors and and reporters about whether to end on tape or whether to end with the reporter, and I've been told I cop out when I end on tape. But I always, I like hearing the sound of um, the person in the story last. Uh, Recently, I I came up with a great ending, which happened three weeks after the interview. The interview was in New Jersey. I'm in Boston. And the ending for me is is me telling the story of this great aha my source had. And I, I wonder how you feel, and, and you know, Joe, I don't know if this fits into your non-narrative pieces, but how you feel about the strength of an ending, whether it's coming from the reporter or from your, from your source. Is your ending coming from your, from your reporting or from the, from the tape I mean, you've gathered? Says in the... what matters about you. Yeah. you. I don't know. I mean, this isn't quite an answer, but I, I like endings that don't really feel like endings. And I, I, maybe that's just because I don't, you know, I like ellipses kind of endings, you know, like I, the ending I was thinking of is this sort of like, uh, it was at that moment I knew that things would never be the same. I mean, maybe. You like that? I guess. I don't know. I don't know. So I, I and so it is all, it's, of course, it's coming from the tape and it's coming from, it's sort of like not the period and not seeing them on the stage take the bow, but walk off the stage. That's the kind of thing that I like. We, we should move. We have, maybe I'm going to do the two more. Uh, I know the three of you standing there. It's a shame. But they're giving me the how many minutes? The three-minute warning. Can you do a quick question and get a quick answer? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, for Alan, I'm just wondering what went into the decision to put uh, the joke about the landscape versus the portrait um, so close to the beginning. Like When you knew that you had that, did you know that it was kind of it said something that you wanted to start it with? The, uh, everyone heard the question? I don't have time to repeat it. Um, that was a case for me when my father said, I have to, you have to understand, my father my whole life never said the word art. Artist, I, my father never even been in a museum. I was asking, that came out of a context where I was asking my father to tell me some of his salesman jokes. You know, I couldn't, I didn't even use any of them in the film, they're so terrible. And suddenly, you know, and suddenly my father pulls from the back of who knows where this thing about it, a man goes to an art, actually, as I was telling Robert last night, this is why my father, I'm saying, how can my father even know this joke? Man goes to an artist and says, I want to have a picture made. Artist says, two types of picture, portrait and landscape. Man says, which is cheaper? That's why my father knows the joke. It's a Jewish joke, right? <laughs> ah, artist says, landscape. Well, can you make a landscape of me? As soon as I heard that, I said, beginning, prologue, sets up, it's, it's, it's a prof- I thought it was a profound thing for him to say. He had no idea what he said, really. And I thought it just established both the tone, it established the sort of the paradox of what I was trying to do, it established the, the very nature of what and I was trying to do. And when you heard this, was there like... <laughs> no, but I said, okay, I'll give you a birthday party. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
Because it was uh, a bit quiet. Now, be quiet. Let, uh, two more. Uh, next person, the tall one in the in the black. Do I understand right what you're saying that you don't actually go out to get the tape, Robert, until you have the ending? The, I, you, do, you actually don't go out to gather the tape until you know oh, the ending? No, I, I, I go out with a notion of what I'm looking for. It may be the wrong notion completely, but I can't leave the building unless I know what it is I think I want at the end. If someone else beat, comes up with a fabulous ending that I hadn't anticipated, fine. I'll, I'll have the ho at, at that moment. But until I do, I have to have some kind of architecture in place or I can't. You have, a picture, you have some picture of the story in your head before some you picture. can get the tape. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And last but certainly not least. I was wondering, especially for people who don't have and can go out with a set ending, um, if they could maybe recount multi the multiple endings that they were uh, you know, dealing with. I don't know, deciding between and how they eventually uh, decided on their final ending. I didn't hear, I didn't hear the... Oh, how they... If, if, you know, going, if you're going for a piece and you don't know how you're going to end it, um, I, I was wondering if, you know, maybe Joe uh, or one of the other people could talk about how they finally decided on an ending and, and I guess, the, the other options that they were thinking about. Just an example. Quickly, one of you. Uh, well, I would say that um, hopefully, I guess if you do it enough, you know, that, that an ending, when you think of it or write it or hear it, you'll know. And if you don't know that that's your ending, I would, if you're really, really stuck, I would play them for someone who I, you know, respect and like and say, what do you think? I'd go to my editor, I guess. Yeah, I guess I was looking for an anecdote of some sort. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, you just have to kind of go with your, you know, I'll give you a quick one about um, one of the first pieces I heard that was like said to me, oh, there's such a thing as radio documentary. And uh, uh, Sandy Tolan did a piece back in 1988 about Midland and Odessa, Texas. And it ends <laughs> with um, not just, it ends just with this quote on a bar room. And it just, and he just says the quote, and it's this kind of picture of the barroom. And that, for me, that was, I, I can't concentrate now. Um, for me, that was just a message of like, you don't have to end on the conclusion. You can end with this little thing, this little ornament, this little something. So I don't know, that doesn't quite answer, but that's, I kind of keep that in mind as the type of endings that you can, you can do. Uh, we are we are done now. We can't go on anymore. I have to just do. Uh, this is the TV equivalent in the radio conference. The Kitchen Sisters. Uh, are going to have a some kind of chow down or something tonight uh, in the Kitchen Sisters come from the uh, land of Luden, which is a sort of Central European country. In the um, in the land of Luden, beginnings is paholio, and the uh, the word for end is pagno. Uh, so they they've given up a bread with the first sound of both of those is the p for pagno and get pagno. Um, and I am to place this in front of you to remind you that there will be some kind of thing involving bread and possibly cheese. I have some cheese, so definitely cheese. This is a bread that she got, uh, David Delson got in Italy. I don't know why I'm doing this, but this is kind of an advertisement. So you should all come to the, when is it, David? Tonight? You'll, you'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, I'll just hope. 